with that said, uh, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 16. Now, uh, what I'm going to be doing uh, as we're coming to the close of Acts, uh, Paul uh, comes into five trials, actually, uh, as after he is arrested in, in Jerusalem. Uh, there are basically five trials that Paul endures. And each trial Paul has, uh, has communicates uh, really powerfully, uh, really his innocence and defends his right to adhere to the gospel uh, against his attackers. And I want to focus in on one of those defenses, his defense before Felix, as Jewish accusers come and bring all sorts of attacks against Paul. And Paul defends himself. And I think in this defense gives for us uh, a powerful vision of what the path to a clear conscience actually looks like. Uh, and and I, I think this is an important theme. And I, I was realizing, I was praying through all of chapter 24. It was these verses, 14 through 16, that just like these are verses that we need as a church uh, to grab a hold of and to be shaped by. And so what I want to speak to you about uh, today, and I'm going to have the verse um, come up on the screen, is the path to a clear conscience. Uh, this phrase, a clear conscience or a good conscience, is a very Pauline phrase. It actually never uh, occurs in the Gospels, uh, but Paul often references his good conscience or his clean conscience uh, throughout his letters and actually multiple times in the book of Acts itself. And what it immediately provokes in our mind is that Paul lived somehow perfectly, that he lived without guilt, uh, that, that, that he was somehow better than the rest of us. Uh, that's the way that your natural instinct will go when you think about this phrase, clear conscience. Or in the letters, is he bragging about his own ability to be more moral than the rest of us? Is that what's going on? And, and anyone who spent time reading Pauline letters know that Paul's primary emphasis is what? It's the gospel. And the gospel eradicates uh, our ability to stand before God based upon our performance in regards to keeping the law. So that can't be what he means. And so what I want us to see today is what does it actually mean to have a clear conscience and how can we say with Paul, I have a clear conscience before God and men. So let's read these verses together. It says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, or we could even say according to the gospel of Jesus, uh, which they call a sect. This is what his Jewish accusers are calling uh, the way. Uh, he says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains I'm always pressing into this to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. So I want to basically ask, begin here with this closing statement uh, about what is a clear conscience? What is, what is Paul actually getting at when he refers to himself as having a good conscience or a clear conscience? And I want to begin by, by opening up for us the very deep-rooted problem within the church and within believers' lives, including my own, of, of the, that, that temptation to fall into episodes of guilt and shame. This overwhelming sense that I am failing Jesus on every level. Uh, now, I, I would argue that being in ministry uh, as a pastor, that 
that attack upon my own psyche comes quite often. And, and, and I think that part of it's my temperament, but this, this overwhelming sense that I'm always failing. I could be reading my Bible more. I could be praying more. I could be sharing the gospel with more people. I can be a better father. I could be a better husband. I could be a better friend. Why, why don't I take more time to call my dad? Why, why haven't I called my mom this week? And I just feel that nagging voice of guilt uh, that just plagues me. And then it makes me begin to doubt uh, my standing in Jesus. And I'm your pastor, so that should alarm you. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think that what I'm trying to say is that this, I think this is part of the, the human experience. And I think it's part of the Christian experience. And this is why we're called to be a community. And I want to share with you a really powerful article that I read um, on guilt and shame written by a professor named Dan DeWitt for um, Gospel Coalition. And he says, he says this, he says, when you violate God's laws, you feel guilt, but that emotion is quickly, nearly simultaneously joined by shame. Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says that's why you need to hide. You're no good. You deserve to live in darkness. He goes on to say that guilt is the wound and shame is the scar. It's interesting that shame often keeps us perpetuating things that we've been forgiven for. Uh, we still are bothered by the fact that we still bear the scars of the things that we've been forgiven for, uh, and that those scars can actually create within us insecurities or, or that overwhelming sense of, of failure. Uh, he goes on to say, our guilt is objectively forgiven at the cross. So the gospel proclaims that guilt has been dealt with once and for all, that Jesus indeed is victor that he died bearing in himself the guilt that we have, that he died bearing in himself the sin that creates the guilt and the shame, that this was a once and for all act. Past, present, and future sins were actually eradicated in the very physical body of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. It's the essence of the gospel. And that through his victory, that the stamp of approval upon Jesus's ability to take our guilt into himself, our sin, our brokenness into himself, if the stamp of approval was the fact that death could not hold him, but that his victory over death was, was marked by the resurrection. In fact, as Robert Jensen says, to say he is risen is the same thing as saying Jesus is Lord. Because he, to say he is Lord is to say that he's alive. He is the revelation of what God is like. He is the final word of the Father. And so I think that this is important. Our guilt is objectively forgiven at the cross. In Christ, God has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, says Psalm 103, verse 12. But shame will refuse to acknowledge the new identity. And I saw this after last service. So many people came up and just said, I've just been plagued with, thank you. I just needed to be reminded that I'm forgiven because I just feel guilty. I feel like, what if I'm not forgiven? And I'm like, the fact that you're worrying about the fact that you're not forgiven shows that you're forgiven. It's people that, that aren't forgiven that don't care, that aren't thinking about it. When I was deep in, my, in death and sin before Jesus got a hold of my heart, I didn't actually live with that much guilt. <laughs> uh, I, I excused my behavior because I was dead and blind uh, to what I was doing. It's through the revelation uh, of the Holy Spirit to the truth of the gospel that became a light 
<laughs> a light on my guilt and shame, and then quickly became a revelation of God's love and his total dealing with it through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so I love this. He goes, we must counter the voice of shame with the gospel reminder that we're whole. We're new, we're loved, we're forgiven, we're adopted. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he, he closes this, uh, this little article with this statement. We rehearse these truths in community. We can begin to drown out shame's shrill accusations. If we speak the truth of the gospel over each other's lives, this is how we can actually begin to, 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 to drown out shame's shrill accusations. And I think, I think, that this is what Paul is getting at. Uh, in fact, I feel pretty confident. So he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. So let's, let's first of all, let's define this, uh, these two words, both clear and conscience. Let's look at the root of those words. Now, that word clear in the Greek literally means blameless. So if anyone's ever read the letter to the Romans, uh, would, would you ever accuse Paul of saying that one can be saved by keeping the law or being blameless in the law? He's, and he even made a, a statement at one point in one of his letters that, that if anyone got close to keeping the law perfectly, it was him and it still condemned him. It still cursed him. Uh, so, so when he says a clear conscience or a blameless conscience, he's not saying sinless perfection. Uh, he's saying something else. Because the word conscience, which is a very Pauline phrase, a very Pauline word, literally in the Greek means moral sensitivity or awareness or even mindfulness. And so what Paul is saying here, a clear conscience is not keeping law, that's death, but a good conscience is the outcome of clinging to the promise of grace. I would say a clear conscience is not based on what we do for Jesus or what we get from Jesus, but it is wrapped up totally in our identity in Christ. I think one of the great issues that we are confronted with today, because the pendulum swing continues to swing back and forth throughout the history of the church, especially in American evangelicalism over the last hundred years, is we're moving again toward a very diminished or emptied vision of the gospel. And I think that we are moving toward a therapeutic moralism in the church that has led to a proclamation of Christ not as the goal of life, but only as a beneficial factor within life. In other words, as we have begun to fall into the trappings, and I've been watching kind of with just, I, I always try to keep my, my eyes out on what's happening in the church uh, and, and paying attention to what people are preaching and, and what, what is the direction of the church. And I've been seeing increasing, uh, an increasing emphasis upon self-help movements within the church. And I think it's problematic. I think it's a therapeutic moralism that actually diminishes the gospel and leaves us feeling even more guilty and even more shameful because it puts us at the center. And what Paul means when he says, I have a clear conscience, what he is saying is that I keep myself he goes, I keep pains to keep a clear conscience. What he is saying is I, I work to keep my mind set upon the finished work of Jesus. It actually is very much in line with the words of Jesus himself uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Pure in heart, once again, is not moral perfection. Pure in heart is single-minded focused. 
And so this is what's interesting. You can have pure wine it's not, and, not, and it not be good wine. Uh, it's, it's the singleness that matters. This is why Paul says when he gets into the practical application of, of the gospel in Romans chapter 12, verse one, he says, therefore, I beseech you, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. This is the key to a clear conscience is that it's a continual awareness of one's identity, full identity in the perfect and total finished work of Jesus. This is why we never graduate from the gospel. This is why we cannot afford to move toward prescriptive preaching that, uh, that feeds people some sort of therapeutic moralism because self-help books, they're, they're, they're endlessly being written. We don't need to add to it as a church. That would be my argument. So I, I want to just show you how much Paul uses this concept of a good conscience, and it's always in direct connection to faith in the gospel. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1.19, he says, holding faith and a good conscience. And, and, and I would say once again, holding faith, a disposition toward Christ that allows Christ to be Christ in and through us with a good conscience, an awareness of Christ's presence over my life all the time. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. So if we don't live with a continual awareness of Christ's presence, we will begin to fall into the trappings of guilt and shame. So he's not calling people to moralistic living. He's not calling them to law. What he's saying is that we need to hold to the one who actually fulfilled the law. Jesus is always at the center of everything that Paul preached. This is why he says, I determined to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, in 1 Timothy 3, 9, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith. There it is again, our dependence uh, upon the, the person of Jesus and not only the person of Jesus, but the work of Jesus as well with a clear conscience, that awareness. And what, what is he saying? Once again, our minds, our conscience is often convoluted with a million voices that are constantly vying for our affection and our attention. So this is what he is getting at here. So what I want to lay out for you today in these, these few verses in Acts 24 is what I believe is the path to a clear conscience, how we can move beyond guilt and shame um, as a community of faith. And I believe it begins here. He says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, that is according to the gospel, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. The path to a clear conscience begins with true worship. And I say true worship because all people worship all the time. The question is not whether or not you worship. The question is, is what do you worship? True worship in its very essence is surrender. And I always say when you want to actually come to an understanding of what a word means in the Bible, you go to its first mention. The first mention of worship in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 22, verse five, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac and he says to the young men that are with him uh, in his travels, he says, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. He's not saying that, that Isaac and I are gonna go over the hill and sing Kumbaya. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be surrender. And for those of you that have heard me give messages on, the, on what is worship, I think it's important to remember that, A, worship is the eternal occupation of every believer. I, I think that Tozer is right when he says, if we do not worship seven days a week, we do not worship one day a week when, in, in regards to true worship. 
Uh, but I, I like to create that framework, and I'll repeat it again because I think it's helpful, is that worship begins in submission, that it's initiated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually helps us worship. It's defined by truth. That is that the gospel is a story with parameters <laughs> that we are held to. Uh, that the truth is Jesus himself. So he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So our worship of God is empowered by God through God. I think it's important. But I would say the outcome of true worship is it is expressed in love. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So worship begins in submission. It's initiated by the Spirit. It's defined in truth, and it's expressed in love. Now, here is the thing is that as we move into an age where that therapeutic moralism is increasing, which I believe increases guilt and shame, because what it does is instead of putting Jesus at the center of our worship, it puts us at the center, which is, here's the thing, is that false worship, the other word for false worship is just simply what scripture calls idolatry, that the human heart is an idol factory, uh, that you worship whatever captures your affections. Do you realize that? This is why false worship is so dangerous because we often will worship good things, things that are actually a gift. We can worship our spouse. We can worship our children. We can worship our jobs. These are all good things, but when they become the main thing, the supreme thing, it becomes idolatry and it actually hurts us and it actually keeps us from having a clear conscience and actually feeds into that reality of guilt and shame. True worship is not that. I love what Augustine says in his book, Confessions, uh, in book 10. One of my favorite quotes from that book is, is around true worship. He says, there is a delight which is given not to the wicked, but to those who worship you for no reward save the joy that you yourself are to them. That is authentic, happy life. To set one's joy on you, grounded in you and caused by you. That is the real thing and there is no other. If I could just simplify Augustine's statement by quoting George MacDonald, the greatest gift that God gives is God himself, is essentially what he's saying. That, that true worship is when the joy is found not in what I get from God, but just simply relishing the fact that he loves us that he's with us, that he's for us, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And what I think we need to keep in mind as a community, if we want a clear conscience, we need to grab a hold of the fact that we are called a royal priesthood in the New Testament. And what that means, if you were to take the, the, the rules given to the priesthood in the Old Testament, one of the key principles for the priest was this, and Levi shall have no inheritance in the land for the Lord himself is his inheritance. That's the essence of true worship, that the one who has God has everything. And I think that Paul saying this, what leads to a clear conscience for him is that his worship is true. His submission to Christ is what allows the Holy Spirit to bring about an awareness and assurance that he has been bought at a price. And that awareness leads him into truth instead of falsehood. And that truth leads him to live out a life of love, even though he's under incredible amounts of persecution. So true worship must be the first step toward a clear conscience. And this is exactly why Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Notice a tr the Trinity is in that statement right there. We will worship the Father in spirit or by the Spirit through the Son. 
This is our call, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Secondly, Paul says, and I believe what he's leading us to is this path to our clear conscience, is not only do we need to be marked by true worship, but we also need to be marked by a saving faith. And I want to be clear uh, by saying a saving faith, because like worship, all people exercise faith as well. It's not a question of whether or not you believe in things. The question is, is what do you believe in? Faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. Uh, but I think that this is important. He says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Now, we know that we do not worship the written word, but I think it's important to keep in context that when Paul here, he is very brilliantly countering the attacks of his Jewish accusers. And what he is saying is that the worship of Jesus uh, and, and the, pro the proclamation of the gospel is not a new religion. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And that the law and the prophets, when he says he believes all that is written in the law and the prophets, what he is essentially saying is that the law and the prophets are fulfilled. They are true because they are perfectly fulfilled in the Son of God, who is both its author and its fulfiller. And I think that it's important for us to recognize that when we talk about a saving faith, that um, people ask like, is it faith in the word of God or is it faith in the living word, Jesus? It is faith in the living word, but that cannot be separated from the written word because all that we know of the living word is given to us in the written word. This is why I share with you uh, a very dangerous statement of a very um, charismatic preacher who recently wrote in one of his books that we need to move beyond the written word. And I was like, whoa, 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 that's, that's not, that actually, the, the scripture says the exact opposite of that. In fact, it is the written word that actually gives us the parameters by which we test the spirits to know what is from God and what is not from God. Uh, so I think that it's important for us, once again, if, if true worship is the first step toward a clear conscience, uh, saving faith is just as necessary and directly connected. And I think it's important to give you guys a good definition of faith. Um, and I'm going to give you a definition that comes out of, I, I've been super fascinated with, um, with the works of Luther um, over the last uh, several months. So I'm going to share with you from the Heidelberg um, Catechism. I, I think this is a beautiful definition of faith. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me. Notice it's a gift. Faith itself is a gift created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. As the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of it, uh, bursts within us faith. Jesus himself is the author and the finisher of faith. And he says, out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. It's a powerful statement. We always talk about the gospel leading to us being justified um, before God. And I think one of the problems with the word justify for us as modern, as modern people is when we use the word justify, we think of it in terms of making excuses for. Um, I, I think that Fleming Rutledge does a good job in her, in her masterpiece, The Crucifixion, uh, which I've been reading over the last three months. It's a, just a massive tome uh, that covers the crucifixion from every angle. Uh, she prefers over the word justification, the word uh, rectified, uh, to be rectified. That is like literally something has been changed about our very position before God. And honestly, that is a key idea if you want to have a clear conscience. 
is that Jesus has made our standing before God totally new. It's not, he doesn't just make excuses for our bad behavior. He actually takes the bad behavior, makes it his own, deals with it totally, and gives us an entirely new standing that we must speak into one another's lives as a community. Uh, and I think that that is a really powerful thing. But I think that this is important too. When we think about faith, it's not just, I believe that what the scripture says is true, or I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, because the demons believe that and it does nothing for them. I think that when we think of faith, we need to think of faith in action or faith that leads to following Jesus somewhere. It changes the trajectory of one's life. Faith is not merely cognitive activity, but it involves both affections and the will. And I think that's super important. Calvin wrote in his Institutes that faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. That it's not even just belief that God exists or that God has revealed himself in Jesus, but it actually faith that's birthed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit reveals what? It says that the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts, what? The love of God. Faith in God, it's faith in God's goodness toward us in Christ, that he's actually a God who is for us, not against us. And I think that that's a profound uh, vision of faith. And I, I, w- I want us to, to be thinking in terms of that because here, if you want a clear conscience, we need to understand this. The characteristic construction for saving faith is that the verb believe is almost always followed by the preposition in. Literally, this means to believe into. It denotes a faith which, so to speak, takes a person out of him or herself and puts them into Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the kind of faith uh, that God is looking for. That's why I always like to define faith as faith is a disposition toward Christ that allows Christ the right to be Christ in and through our lives. And only then will we find the clear conscience that we desire. This is why it says in Romans chapter 10, verses eight through 10, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then he goes on to say, if you want to know Uh, If you can separate the living Christ from the written word, I think this sums it up, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I think that that is is important for us uh, to get our heads around. I think one of the issues that we find in the church today and why we struggle with a guilty conscience as the gospel is drained of its depth and as we become an increasingly illiterate society, I think that uh, we do not take the scriptures seriously enough. Uh, And I think that this is deeply problematic for the church because the scriptures lead us to a robust vision of who Jesus is. And I think that if we don't take the scripture seriously, if we pick and choose what we want to believe, we enter enter into uh, a, a deconstruction of the very foundation that is necessary for us to have the clear conscience. Uh, in fact, Isaiah 66.2, this is the verse that I think when Paul says, I believe in the law and the prophets because, they, because the law and the prophets all point toward and speak of Jesus. But I think of this verse in Isaiah 66, and I think Paul took very seriously as well as the early church for it says they studied the apostles' doctrines daily meeting in house to house, how seriously they took the scriptures. And every time there has been a legitimate revival in church history, there has been an awareness of God's, a supernatural magnified awareness of God's 
very presence in the lives and a wit which leads to an awareness of one's own brokenness and need for God, which creates an incredible, insatiable appetite for God's word, which leads to an unstoppable love for God's people. Uh, and I think that that pattern in revival is, is, is legit. And I think that we need to be a church that asks the question, and I've been, been struck by this, is how seriously do we take the word? I mean, we, we are in an age now where we don't even have to bring Bibles to church anymore because we have, we have phones that constantly send us reminders. I mean, I'm preaching from an iPad. I think there's a, that's why at home I always read from an actual physical Bible. There's just something about it. I just need to be reminded of it, that this, this holy thing, that we're a different people. We're a weird people. We have a book that defines and, 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 and guides our lives and tells us where things are going to end up. There's a, a real story that God is telling, and it's a history, and it has a beginning and it has an end, um, and we need to understand it. And it's a big stinking book, which requires a lot of time invested into it to get your head around it. All these things my hands has made, Isaiah writes. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I just ask you guys, you want to have a clear conscience. Do you take seriously the word of God? Is your faith in the living Christ as he is revealed to us through his scriptures? Uh, and I think that if you want to ask the question, does the scriptures actually make a difference in regards to our faith in Jesus? Well, Jesus himself says in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. In an age where truth is no longer definable, we need the scriptures. Sanctification is faith in action. The word applied to living. So the second step toward a clear conscience is a saving faith. The third step and the final step is what I would call a living hope. Paul says, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, it's fascinating when Paul talks about hope, and I think hope is, is once again a very confusing concept for us because we often have our affections, our personal affections placed upon the things of this world. I was talking with a couple actually from Redeemer that moved here from Texas um, at their community group uh, on on Tuesday night. And it was fascinating. They said that one of the greatest challenges of living in Portland uh, from moving here from Fort Worth, uh, which they said is a cultural vacuum, to moving to Portland, which is like so full of culture that they just are overwhelmed with all of the pleasures that are at their fingertips. They're overwhelmed by the million things that are vying for their affections and their attention. And it makes it, it, makes it easy to be distracted from the things that really matter. And I think that we do live in a city of pleasure, a city of pleasure that it becomes easy that we replace hope of the resurrection with hope for the little things that bring temporary happiness to our lives, hope for a meal at the new restaurant or hope for the new record that's being released or hope in, in whatever it is that we put our hopes in. I, I can just simply say that when the New Testament talks about hope and it talks about it a lot, a theology of hope is a hope that is built upon the fact that Jesus is risen, therefore we have a future. 
Uh, and I think that one of the challenges that we are confronted with today is that we have lost eternal perspective because life is so full and we are so good at pretending that we're never going to die uh, that we have learned uh, how to move from fleeting joy to fleeting joy. And we're not, we're not exercising biblical hope. What we are is practicing worldly desire. And I think it's, I think it's problematic. Uh, and I think it hinders our ability to have a clear conscience because there are things that, I, and I find, you guys, I just want you to know that I do this myself. We get so tired that we find excuses, reasons why we, can, we, need, we need downtime, we need to turn off, we need to be able to give ourselves to this instead of the hope of a future with Christ actually sustaining us and energizing us and moving us through day in and day out toward that fulfillment of all things. We actually set our, it's like, it's like I don't have the ability to see that far into the distance. I'm so driven by the moment that all I can think about is, well, I don't know about the resurrection, but I do know that there's a new episode of this show on tonight. Uh, and so our hope becomes put on these things that actually, they don't actually create any sort of satisfaction, uh, actually what they end up doing, when our hope is constantly placed upon fleeting things, it leaves us more and more empty, more and more guilty, and more and more shame-filled. And I think that Paul is, I think that the, the New Testament writers are onto something that we cannot lose sight, that the, that the gospel is a story. And that story is a history, God's history in his creation. And that he has begun this story and that he will finish that story. And that Jesus rose from the dead tells us that we have a future and that future is what we must give ourselves to. We don't know what will come of our plans and our hopes. Therefore, human life is possible only by faith, by the conviction that there is after all something out there, that the road does have a goal. And for us as Christians, we need to say that because he has risen, he is our future. And this is why we are told in Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the real question that I have for you. Do you hope in his return? Do you hope in your future resurrection body where you will be free from guilt and shame totally once and for all? Do you hope in justice for this world being played out in every arena and all things being made new. Do you hope in that? Because I will tell you this, our stunted growth as Christians is directly in correspondence to the lack of hope that we exercise as followers of Jesus. Because 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-3 through three says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves just as he is pure. Isn't that fascinating? Our sanctification as followers of Jesus, our purifying of our lives, the, the clarity of our conscience is directly in course, it, 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 it is in correspondence with our hope in his return in a real future, not some false future that we constantly give ourselves to that disappoints us and discourages us and drains us and leaves us guilty. Not in the, the multitude of escapes that we have created for ourselves to deal with the monotony of existence. What we need is a real hope in a real Christ who's alive and with us now and is moving us toward, a, toward the fulfillment of his history. 
And the goal of the Christian life is not what can I get from Jesus? The goal of the Christian life is Christ himself. He is the culmination of all that is and all that we need. And I think that this is important for us to understand because Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So I believe these three things are the key to our path to a clear conscience. A clear conscience is not your ability to keep law. Law condemns. The law's not bad, but it can't save us. It's a plumb line from heaven. Jesus alone fulfilled the law. Our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. We worship Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. We put our hope in Jesus. And it is through that identity in Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that we find the place where a clear conscience actually comes into being. I want Jesus to set you free from your guilt and shame. There's no place for it in the believer's life. Should the Spirit convict us of sin? Absolutely. But the conviction of sin is to be brought to confessed and released for the acceptance of the total and absolute forgiveness that is ours in Christ. It is the love of God that compels us to live differently. And it is resting in his total forgiveness and our identity being found in him that we, like Paul, can say, I have a clear conscience before God and men. Amen?